and welcome back to this week's episode of Manifest Destiny. Today, we are going to be covering a lot. Um, We're just checking in with the gals first. Rebecca, how was your week? I mean, pretty darn good. We've got a new president and our new VP. As predicted by me, there was no violence. Yeah, you went two for two. Two for two with doomsday predictions. And not to rub it in, but Rebecca had a very big birthday this week. You really are rubbing missed, it in, though. I missed her party. Yes. <laughs> I forgot did. about it. But that Which doesn't mean I'm not excited. will surprise to... absolutely none of our listeners. <laughs> I'm using this platform to wish her a happy birthday instead of going to the party because I got distracted. But I was, like, texting Rebecca during the time, and I was like, why isn't she replying? And then I was like, oh, yeah, she's at her own Zoom birthday party. I mean, Zoom birthday parties are pretty terrifying. Like, it was very It's just crazy that they're still going on. I know. Like... I think it's like, call, like if if my birthday was right now, I would go up to my closest friends and be like, look, guys, I know how you feel. We Skype an appropriate amount. Yeah. There's just no need. At one point, somebody was like, oh, should we like switch to a professional Zoom? And I was like, absolutely not. This is lasting no more than 40 minutes. I'm oh, yeah, I know. It's like. It, whoever, like, they they say that it's, like, Zoom premium. Like, Zoom premium is when a call only lasts 40 minutes. I would prefer yeah. if my yes, company exactly. only had <laughs> only in Zoom basic. There's no reason for any meeting of any amount of people to be longer no. than 40 minutes. Mm-mm. Especially a birthday party that had approximately 25 people on it on Zoom. That was just not the oh tea. Oh my god. That sounds... I mean, I do I do feel bad. I did want to go. It, but... was, it was fun, but it was also like a lot of disparate friend groups and like I was just carrying the combo. But the upside is... Manifest Destiny got some airtime and we picked up some new listeners. So what's we picked up, up to some our... new what's up? Shout out to Jen. Shout a little out to grassroots Kyla. campaign happening here. You love to see it. I'm yeah. listening to the Obama memoir right now. Oh. Um, and if there's one thing I learned, it's all about grassroots campaigning. And that is the big my big takeaway. So now I'm, you know, I'm on the subway, I'm walking around, I'm just telling random people about it. Except for my roommate. So if I'm talking quietly at any point, it's because my roommate doesn't really know. I think she knows in the abstract that I have a podcast. Oh my but god. She, but she, Why are you keeping it from her? I'm not really it's just so embarrassing. Her boyfriend is like die well, I told her about it and her boyfriend is like, I'm gonna find it and just just crucify you like just make oh so much god. Like, I'm like I'm not afraid but I am afraid so I'm not Megan if you're listening <laughs> then I told you about it <laughs> Megan if you're hearing this I told you the name of the podcast but otherwise it's a secret um yes <laughs> so that's just that's just what's going on with me <laughs> just wow. trying to be keep it on the low wow in a 500 square foot apartment I feel like where it's pirate radio now, where like it's contraband. Yes, I mean it's a little bit like that. <laughs> the only the only person we're hiding from though is ourselves. Yikes! Deep it's and upsetting. Uh-huh. So yeah, a good um, week. We uh, we had a lot of firsts in our country. We have our first black vice president, first woman vice president. We had all of the uh, 
new I mean I was personally very excited to see like the blended families during inauguration day like okay you're you're bearing the lead you're being the most important part of the inauguration which is that J-Lo she slid a little let's get loud into this land is our is your land this I land mean, is my land that is some let's icon shit loud also Lady Gaga I'm showing done. up like she's announcing the 75th Hunger Games was just too much <laughs> and of course like the Bernie meme that swept the nation well, by the storm well the Bernie meme I, I like the Bernie meme but I thought the Earl like I feel like it's kind of taken on a life of its own where it's just it's getting too photoshopped much into random stuff now like I feel like early days of the Bernie meme as in like 12 hours ago yeah when it was just like literally people being like Bernie is dressed like he's like oh yeah I'll stop by Joe's thing but it's it's not the only thing I'm going to have a to-do list I brought some mail <laughs> he just I mean like only Bernie would show up in his like weather tech coat and <laughs> Oh my god, it's it was just, uh, icon shit. <laughs> well, also J- Janet Yellen was also an icon. She's not getting the she's not getting the press she deserves for giving way less of a fuck than even Bernie and just literally just being an icon. So cold. And yeah. and it was so funny somebody was like, "Oh, I'm so glad they're all wearing masks." I'm like, "They are probably so amped they get to wear masks. It's like 4 degrees in DC right now." I so, know they all looked so cold. Yeah, it was a great inauguration as far as inaugurations go. Lots to see, lots of great outfits. Michelle Obama just like literally stepped on everyone's necks. It was great. Um, I mean, there was so much purple, which I'm sh- I guess we're going to talk about this today. Yeah, I mean, but we might as well just dive right in. The blend of red and blue, which is showing the unity between two parties, and it's also the color of royalty. But this is actually the perfect transition. It is. So Becca, take it away. What Becca, what are you telling us about this week? So I was going to do something different today, but because of the inauguration fashion, I went down a rabbit hole that I should have gone down sooner in my life, and I'm very glad I did. But Kamala Harris wore purple and looked like a queen, also in nod to bipartisanship and the suffragettes, but mostly because of Shirley Chisholm. And Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to run for the office of the presidency, and purple was like her big campaign color. So I really like went from there and I'm going to tell you today about Shirley Chisholm because I figured some of you manifestors probably haven't heard about her either and she is worth talking about. So without further ado, Shirley St. Hill was born on November 30th, 1924. What's her sign? Say it again. January 30th? No, November 30th. Oh, Sagittarius. Love that for her. Um, you know, love Sagittarius. They're fire signs. They're the archers, so they're super direct. Um, they're really fun, adventurous, bold. I just love all fire signs. They're very creative, um, and they're, like, really their, – their life on Earth is about, like, exploring and adventure. Like, they're all – like, they're really – they're really, like, they're very complementary to a lot of the more, like, cerebral signs because they're all about action. Um, but not to, and they are really, like, they're a very intelligent sign, but, like, they're at their best when they're, like, working and working towards something. Like, and they're just a very, like, direct. These really don't miss. Like, you haven't had one big miss yet where I'm like, that really doesn't describe this person because that is, like, exactly Shirley Chisholm to a T. I know. I know that, wow. Rebecca. I'm I becoming a believer. You guys are hearing it in subtext- real time. It's like, this is like a Inception scenario where it's like, what is this podcast really about? You think it's about American history. It's really about Rebecca becoming an astrologer. So take it away. Take it away. Tell me more. So she was born in Brooklyn uh, to immigrant parents. Shout out. Shout out to Brooklyn. Blair's from New York. I don't know if you've heard before, but she (laughs) is from New York. But I I don't think I've mentioned it since I moved to Brooklyn. And that's a whole other breed of obnoxious. Like I'm I mean, ready I'm to sure we'll about hear about Brooklyn. it over the course of yeah, this you will. ID. You will. She, she was she's in my district. Go on. So her parents were both immigrants. One was from Guyana and the other's from Barbados. 
Her father worked as a factory worker and was a big supporter of Marcus Garvey, who definitely deserves his own ID, and we will get to it. Oh, we will get to it. We'll get to it. So her mother was a talented seamstress, but it became pretty difficult for her to be working full-time and raising Shirley and her younger sisters. So in 1929, Shirley and her two sisters were sent to Barbados to live with their maternal grandmother, Emmeline Seal. And Emmeline was a big influence on young Shirley. She would later reflect of her grandmother, quote, Granny gave me strength, dignity, and love. I learned from an early age that I was somebody. I didn't need the Black Revolution to tell me that, end quote, which I thought was really lovely. As someone that stands my grandmother very hard, I thought that was very nice. Oh my. So it's like she was always been instilled at an early age with mm-hmm. self-worth. Yep, and she I was love that. she learned how to read and write in Barbados. She was educated, she was involved in some of the labor strikes that were going on down there. Not involved, but aware of it. So that's kind of <laughs> She was she was literally five at the time. So she wasn't she was actually striking. <laughs> striking herself. I mean, but... she wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. She in solidarity as a 5-year-old, she wasn't working. Exactly, exactly. Go on. So in 1934, Shirley returned to New York, and in 1939, she started attending the Integrated Girls School Bedford Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant. Bedford. You know? Bed Stuy. Bed Stuy, baby. Stuyvesant. Bed-Stuy. Um, Peter Stuyvesant founded New York. That, so there's lots of shit named after him. Okay, we're gonna call it Bed Stuy because that word has got too many vowels. Yeah, that's what everybody calls it. <laughs> so she <laughs> welcome attended- to the oh, welcome to the party. I'm learning. <laughs> So she went on to earn a Bachelor of Arts from Brooklyn College and became an active advocate while in college for inclusion, specifically the integration of black soldiers into the military during World War II, the addition of school coursework that covered more black history, and advocated for the presence of more women in student government. So in the late 1940s, she met Jamaican immigrant Conrad Chisholm, who she then went on to marry in 1949. After graduating from college, she began working as a teacher's aide at a child care center in Harlem while also pursuing her master's in elementary education from the Teachers College of Columbia, which I don't know, Blair, ever heard of it? Like, I've, that... I have heard of it. I've spent, I've dipped in it. Dipped in it. <laughs> I'm protecting my identity, but it yeah. sounds like a lovely place for geniuses. <laughs> so after graduating from Columbia in 1952, she became the director of a nursery in Brooklyn and another child care center in Lower Manhattan before becoming an educational consultant for the division of daycare. And she quickly developed a reputation for being an expert on early childhood education and and welfare. So this is really the beginning of her activism. So in 1953, Chisholm joined the effort to elect Lewis Flagg Jr. as the first black judge in Brooklyn. She also started volunteering at predominantly white political clubs, specifically the Brooklyn Democratic Club and the League of Women Voters. So in 1960, she joined the Unity Democratic Club, where she campaigned for the group's leader, Thomas Jones. Thomas Jones ended up losing his election for an assembly seat in 1960, but then ran again two years later and won and became Brooklyn's second black assemblyman. So when Jones went on to accept a judicial appointment rather than running for re-election, Chisholm was like, you know what, I'm going to run for this seat. And so she did. So in 1964, she ran for the New York State Assembly. She faced a lot of backlash for being a woman running for office. Um, and in reaction to that, she started just appealing like directly to women voters. So she's like, honestly, fuck the rest of you. I'm just going to focus on appealing to women. And wouldn't you know, she won the Democratic primary in 1964 and went on to win. Yes. Her, won her seat by a landslide. Oh, yes. Like, Love that. Just so she just, it. just only focused on getting women. Yeah, and I mean, she men voted for her too, but like once she started focusing, yeah, on because women, their wives just... were like, "Fucking vote for this lady." Right. <laughs> that's how you get. That's how you do it. More politicians should mobilize that way. Go on. I mean, truly. So she went on to become a member of the New York State Assembly from 1965 to 1968. 
one of her early projects in the assembly was to argue against the state's literary test literacy test requiring English. She had this like great statement where she's like, just because English is not your first language doesn't mean you're not intelligent. So we should stop making English a requirement for literacy, which facts, big facts. So she then went on to succeed in getting unemployment benefits extended to domestic workers. She sponsored the introduction of SEEK, which is the Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge uh, to New York State, and that provided disadvantaged students with a chance to enter college and receive remedial education if she needed it. So education was really her big hill. And in 1968, she was elected as the Democratic National. Did she Committee. have kids? Sorry. Nope, no kids. Nope. She was no kids. Just worried about the next the gen. Yep. Which I mean, yes. big fan of that. Just focus on your Love own that shit. for her. Exactly. Keep your so, head down. And just yeah. Go to school. <laughs> Everyone's your kid when you're a public servant. Like, you don't need to That's, have any of your own. You don't need to tell me that, Rebecca. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so she won her seat and as the Democratic National Committee woman for New York State. And when this classic lady staffed her office, she hired only women, half of whom were black. So she was initially assigned to the House Agriculture Committee, which she took as a slight because she was representing a city and spent all of her years in a city. So she confesses to a colleague that she was feeling pretty put out that they put her on the House Agriculture Committee. And they were like, honestly, you should just use this as a way to use excess food to help the poor. So she ends yeah, up Yeah, but isn't up- that where they do food stamps in the Agriculture Committee? Yep, you're getting ahead of us. But she met up with Bob Dole and became instrumental in expanding the food stamps program because of the work yes. that she had to do at the House Agricultural Committee, even though she really wasn't interested. So after that, after she you know had proved herself, she was later assigned to the Education and Labor Committee, which is really where she wanted to be. That was far more her speed. And she went on to become the third highest ranking member of that committee. In 1971, Chisholm became one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus and the National Women's Political Caucus. Both those happened in 71. And in 72, Chisholm was like, you know what? Honestly, I have done so much and far more than a lot of my peers. So I am going to be the first black majority party candidate to run for president. I I thought you were going to say retire. <laughs> That's I mean, what I would have done. Would have been fair enough. Like, absolutely. I had a good run with the food stamps thing, but I'm, I'm done. As okay, is your good want. Good to know. Good to know. But As she went on want. to run for president, and I'm going to mm-hmm. quote her the way yes. she introdu- introduced herself to voters, because it's just great. So she says, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I am equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big name politicians or celebrities of any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted, been an accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America, and my presence before you now symbolizes a new era in American political history. Which just like chills, full body chills. Wow. Wait, and so what year is this? Who who was this she was against in the primary? Seventy two. I mean, so yeah. we got like Ford and stuff. It's McGovern. McGovern. Uh, oh God. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a name you don't hear every day. I know. So, of course, her campaign was seriously underfunded because she's a black woman in America. And people, and people are suck. Mm-hmm. Yes. She really struggled to get people to take her seriously. Like, people wanted to make her like a figurehead and a symbol of progressivism without actually taking her seriously as a viable political can- candidate, which really frustrated her. She got especially frustrated at her black male colleagues saying that she fed felt she experienced more discrimination as a woman than she did for being black. And she goes on to say men are men, which it's true. 
It's men cool. are men. Wait, I need a shirt that says that men are men. That right? is everything. But that's actually funny. That reminds me of if we make merch, there's there's definitely going to be a men are men hat. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but in Obama's memoir, which I am listening to right now on Audible, and he's he's literally narrating it, and I have to listen to it at one point three speed because that man talks so slow, it's like interminable. <laughs> But um, but he's at, he, I'm like on his campaign right now, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because it's like he talks about how like no one thought he could win, so like Reverend Jesse Jackson, like all these really intense black leaders were like pushing him to be more extreme and all this shit. They were like, you're just like they were like you are gonna be like everyone's taking you seriously for once. Like this is your platform to be like a black leader and like a black voice. And he was just like, no, I'm like trying to win for real. And they were like, well, you're not gonna win, so you might as well just put it all out there. And he's like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna stage like. He like yeah. he was like everyone wanted me to put everything out there and be like you're all a bunch of racists. No, it's so but true. I couldn't do it because I actually wanted to win. But all these like he's like all the elders of black leadership in Congress and elsewhere were like you're never gonna win, so you might as well make a make a point while you have this platform, which yeah. is so interesting and you know irritating, irritating as hell. <laughs> like so men are men, baby. They're babies. Um, Shirley Chisholm's husband ended up actually having to serve as her bodyguard until she was given secret yes. service protection in May because there were so shit. many. King shit. That is some king shit. Right? He, there was literally like so many threats against her and nobody was doing anything. So her husband is like, I am now your official bodyguard. Eventually, Well, that's also hilarious that, you know, you didn't have to, you didn't have to call yourself that. <laughs> no. no one, you didn't have to go that hard, but you did. And we love you for it. You could have just been like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking out. I'm, I'm taking some time off to look after my wife. But he's like, I'm your official bodyguard now. <laughs> Go He on. deputized himself. So <laughs> Chisholm's base was very ethnically diverse and included some icons like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, and who actually both attempted to run as Chisholm delegates in New York to support her. They were campaigning with her. It was women coming together, doing it for themselves. Yes, yes. So... Although she only won 2.7% of the 16 million votes cast, which put her seventh place among the Democratic contenders, she became the first woman to appear in a U.S. presidential debate. She ultimately, Ooh. which great, and her speech is amazing. I highly recommend everyone go and watch it. Um, also, fun fact, she was, I haven't seen Mrs. America, but it looks great. And I was watching some clips from it. Uzo Aduba Oh, plays yeah, that's Shirley been on Chisholm. my list for a yeah, long time. It she's looks a, really she's a, good. She's a character? Oh, Uzo Aduba. I haven't seen her since, like, my Orange is the New Black days. I know. Well, she's gotta great. Get it. It's it's okay, really, wow. really good. I haven't watched it, but I watched some clips of Uzo playing Shirley, and it was just everything. Oh, so. wow. Okay. I need yeah. to give that show a shot. Yeah, me too. So Shirley Chisholm ultimately earned 152 first ballot votes for the nomination during the July 12th roll call. Her largest support randomly came from Ohio with 23 delegates, even though she oh, had not been on the ballot. Buckeye State, we see you. Keep going. So she was not on the ballot during the primary, but enough people wrote her in, which is just amazing. So <laughs> that put her in fourth place behind in the roll call tally behind McGovern, who was winning a total of 1,700-plus delegates. And he obviously won the nomination, but then went on to lose against Nixon in what was one of the biggest landslide victories in U.S. history. So McGovern really shouldn't have... Cross Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm maybe could have beat Richard Nixon. You just don't know. You just don't know. I mean, as as President Kennedy said in 1960, he was like, do you have any idea how much pressure I'm under? Like, I'm the only thing. <clears throat> I'm the only thing standing between Richard Nixon and the presidency. <laughs> like, I Literally. have to get there. But, you know, things just kept happening. And here we all are. So <laughs> go on. Sorry. So after she lost her bid for president, 
she was elected to the secretary of the House Democratic Caucus um, from 77 to 81. She also got divorced in 77 from her former bodyguard. But that same year married Arthur Hardwick Jr. <laughs> former, f- former bodyguard. Former bodyguard. Wait, but he was her husband first, right? Yeah. She was married. So okay. Chisholm, her husband, Conrad Chisholm, was the one who was her bodyguard. She dumped his ass in 77. So he got demoted. He was husband, then he was bodyguard, and then he was just some guy. <laughs> just some ex. And exactly. she remarried the same year to Arthur Hardwick Jr., who was a former... Savage. I mean, savage. Savage. Just like swapped out her men. But unfortunately, her second husband was injured in a car accident. Um, So she ended up retiring from Congress in 1982. And Arthur died four years later, which is very sad. After she left Congress, so she retired from Congress in 82 to take care of her husband. Her husband dies in 86. And at that point, Shirley Chisholm returned to New York and education. She was named the Purington, the Purington Chair at Mount Holyoke, um, which has been held by like W.H. Auden. So, you know among legends and she became a very active speaker at colleges she toured like 150 different colleges encouraging people to be more politically active she also co-founded the national congress of black women in 1984 and campaigned for jesse jackson during the 1984 and 1988 presidential elections she finally retired in 1991 and in 1993 she was inducted into the national women's hall of fame and she died in Florida on January 1st, 2005. She was buried in Buffalo, New York. And the inscription on her tomb is... Oh, God. I'm, I like, Give me a pause. Give me a pause. Okay. This is going to be good. I can tell. Okay. It's now simple. Tell three words. Unbought and unbossed. Oh! Come on. Like... Oh, my God. I need I a love tattoo. That. Like, it's just I am, so I'm good. tweeting it right now. You guys I think mean, I'm kidding. But if you follow me on Twitter, I so, love it. So, so wow. good. And Shirley Chisholm has gone on to be, obviously, an inspiration for a lot of people running for political office. Kamala Harris uh, used her campaign colors, purple and yellow, in her own 2020 campaign. Kamala was obviously also wearing purple on Inauguration Day, which is definitely, as we said, it's a nod to bipartisanship, the suffragette movement, royalty, but also very much to Shirley Chisholm. Hillary Clinton was also wearing purple. So it's really become a color that is synonymous with this groundbreaking, pioneering woman and all the great work she did. And I am just really honored Ugh. to have learned this story. And I hope that this wow. is the kind of stuff that we hear more about. Unbought really... and unbossed. I also love how it's like, you know, Hillary Clinton, like, is just like, it's like when you're like, you don't want to go to a wedding because your ex is going to be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you have to go because it's like your friend. <laughs> like, I feel like that's how Hillary Clinton feels going to every, like, going to that inauguration. She's yeah. like, She does have like big, like, should have been me energy at every inauguration. I know. She's at every turn. To. It's, it's just funny, but I mean, good for her. I mean, do you think that they're on like a group text and we're like, let's all wear purple or conversely, do you feel like they were pissed at each other? I don't know. Like, I feel like I don't they, know. at least everyone got the memo for like monochrome jewel tones. So I feel like there was yeah, some no, I, I saw a meme that was like group chat said jewel tones. Yeah. I mean, and I was like, there sure was. Everyone looked great. Really. 10 out of 10 for style, but like also 10 out of 10 for honoring Shirley Chisholm who did it first and did it best the world just wasn't ready for her I live in her former congressional district so there's like a playground named after her there's like all these little like parks and stuff like that so I was like peripherally aware of her and then when she kept coming up like when I was watching the inauguration and stuff that was really intense um I was like oh yeah yeah so now I remember it's refreshed I'm glad we told everybody about it we're doing our part we're setting the tone 
There's also a, when she was running for office, a German filmmaker came over and did a movie on her called Shirley Chisholm for President that I'm really trying to find and watch because it seems like Oh, iconic. yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's, you love to see it. An icon, uh, an early trailblazer. Queen icon legend. No choice but Queen to stand. Queen icon legend. Love that for her. Love um, that for okay. us. Wow. So we'll be back briefly um, with After these messages. Woodstock. After these Ooh. brief messages. Welcome back, my friends, to Manifest Destiny. We are now covering kind of the, it's kind of a big deal. We're doing a Woodstock Music Festival. Oh, my God. Um, and I will say that, Rebecca, is it you that has the poster in your room? I mean, I did in my college dorm room. <laughs> yes, you did. I re- okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. I remember Rebecca's college remember dorm that? room. <laughs> um, I remember visiting you in college and sleeping underneath it while we ate those Domino's cheese sticks. And I was like, oh thank God. God, there's not a Domino's near my college. We ate <laughs> way too much pounds. cheesy bread in college. It was not that healthy. Was so good. And also, okay, this is just a side fun fact about one time I visited Becca in college. We rode a mechanical bull together. Oh my God, and- Blair. I forgot <laughs> about that. No, so we rode a mechanical bull together on St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. and my boyfriend at the time saw the pictures on Facebook and was like, you cheated on me with a girl. And I was like, um, I was riding a mechanical bull, and he was like, it still looks like you're making out. I'm like, if we were making out, I just feel like we wouldn't have been able to ride the mechanical bull no. at the same time. Have like, you your ever story's ridden a mechanical bull before? Please. Your story's full of holes. Yeah, no, that was really hard. That was a that was a wild time. Okay, so total aside, Rebecca used to have a Three Days of Peace and Music poster in her dorm room um, that I vividly remember. And so that's where we're going to start. So it's a music festival held on August 15th through 18th in 1969 Favorite on a man year. named Matt. Yeah, our best year, that's the year that Teddy Kennedy also killed a woman for Stands at the Pod. Um, And so there was this guy, Max Yasger. He had a dairy farm in Bethel, New York, and he ended up being host to this giant-ass festival. And it's actually, it was in, it's actually 40 miles away from Woodstock, New York, which is very confusing. So... One of the reasons I was excited to do Woodstock is because if you've ever seen, you know, merch from Woodstock or, you know, just stuff around, it's always billed as an Aquarian exposition, three days of peace and music. And that is a reference to the age of Aquarius, which is, of course, an astrological reference. So I wanted to take a quick pause and explain that, like, every thousand years, the sun moves into a different sign. And it's like around a thousand years. It's really hard to calculate. And so the so the sun has been in Capricorn and it, it and in like two like between like 1960 ish and like 2050 ish, it's moving into the age of Aquarius, oh. um, and it's there for such a long time. And it's like you know that song. It's like age of Aquarius, yeah. the four year old yes. virgin end song. Yes, and the end of the four year old virgin. But it's all um, because Capricorn is like you know they're they're the goat they're really stubborn it's it's like a very aggressive controlling sign and aquarians are like so the opposite like it's a real like i'm uh, cusp like, of the two i know and this is the week where it switched over february 20th or sorry january 20th is the crossover day yeah so it's actually very appropriate that we're talking about this this week 
um, because the age of Aquarius is we are we are now in the is season the of dawning? Aquarius of the is year. Is it the dawning of it's, the age of Aquarius? Perhaps. Well, it's kind of the dawning. Like literally, like they always say, like all these wars that have been going on. They're like, oh, this is all just part of the like. This is just the death gasp of like the age of Capricorn. Like with the age of Aquarius, because the age of Aquarius Aquarians are real like peacemakers. They're real humanitarians. Mm-hmm. So people are like, oh, once the sun is in Aquarius, like things are going to be better. So the people that organized Woodstock were like. Obviously, big protesters of the war. Obviously, very into peace and stuff like that, and aqua- and humanitarianism. So they dubbed it an Aquarius, an Aquarian exposition. Oh, so um, I know. So new facts. So it ended up attracting more than four hundred thousand people, despite the fact that there was rain and thunderstorms throughout the weekend in upstate New York. So I will go ahead and begin with a little bit of background. Um, So it's kind of remembered as this pivotal music, this pivotal moment in music history, as well as a big defining event for the counterculture generation. Mm. Hippies, people protesting the war. If you are a hippie and you cannot say that you were at Woodstock, you might as well lie about it. Like, there's no Instagram (laughs) and you will have no credit as a hippie if you don't say you were there, right? It's true. Um. But basically, this started because there were a couple of guys, um, Roberts and Rosenman, who wanted to finance. Um, they wanted to finance a studio built and build one in Woodstock, New York. It was kind of like a studio in the woods proposal, and there were a couple of really famous acts like Bob Dylan and the band who were known to record in upstate New York, spend time up there. So they were like, oh, it'd be sick if we had like a really cool recording studio up there that like all these big names could go to and attract a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and then they were kind of like, no, like, let, like, let's do a big festival. So these guys, Cornfield and Lang, were like, okay, the new plan is... I know Michael Woods- Lang, by the way, just so we're... Just oh, sneak that in. Oh, weird flex, but okay. Weird flex. How old I is wor- he? He's old now. I think he's got to be in his 70s. He yeah, he was a, be, He books Ricky Lee Jones. I would Ricky think he'd be Jones. older than that. Wow. And, uh, this will come up several times. This I worked at a music venue for several years, and I was the booking agent, among other things. And Michael Lang booked Ricky Lee Jones, who we had at the venue several times. And he's not wow. the nicest guy. <laughs> None of these guys are. I believe it. I wasn't going to go into, like, the weird dynamics between Cornfield and Lang that are that's on on Wikipedia, but apparently, like, Kornfeld was, like, a super chill guy that was, like, let's just listen to music, and Lang was kind of, like... Monetize it. Monetize it, yeah. Yeah, that's Michael Lang's whole vibe. And this is a personal attack, Michael Lang, if you're listening, fuck you. (laughs) If you're listening... Oh, my God, Rebecca! We're gonna be bigger than the Beatles! You can't come for people like that. I absolutely can come from the old white gatekeepers of rock and roll music. I will come for them. Your days are numbered. (laughs) Okay. Um, so anyway, so they opened up Woodstock Ventures and they like take out a floor of 47 West 57th Street in Manhattan, which if like, it's just a very bizarre part of Midtown, like the most soulless place in the world. Sure. And they called this like random, <laughs> they called this random design group to turn it into like a psychedelic tricked out like Woodstock baby, like fl- floor of like Hell's Kitchen in New York, which like just, it's hilarious. So then they got in touch. So they were like trying to find a location for a long time. Um, and they get in touch with Max Yasker, the dairy farmer slash promoter, who's like, you guys can use my dairy farm, like whatever. Um, 
And he kind of is like, oh, like, this will be great for the town. It'll bring lots of commerce. Like, everybody, we should do it. And, like, kind of, like, goes through the process of getting permits and stuff. And the organizers are telling the Bethel, New York authorities, they're like, oh, no, we're expecting, like, 50,000 people. No big deal. But, like, secretly they knew it was going to be way more. Um, and while Max, the main, the guy whose farm it is, is like trying to lobby the town and stuff. There's like all these residents protesting, like signs everywhere that say "Buy, don't buy Max's milk," <laughs> like "Buy no milk, stop Max's Max's hippie music festival." Um, so there was a lot of um, there's a lot of drama like about the permits and stuff like that. Um, they were supposed to like stop work, and then they were just like, you know what? Like we're doing it. <laughs> like I don't know. <laughs> like it, there wasn't really like a legal resolution, but everybody was just kind of like, these guys are from New York. They have money. Like they're gonna like steamroll the board. Like we have to let them do it. So anyway, they get the word out. Um, CCR Creedence Clearwater Revival. They're the first band to sign, and they cause a lot of other bands to sign. We'll talk more about what artists played in a second. Um, but just to go into it, um, the influx of attendees um, caused a crazy traffic jam, and the town of Bethel was, like, so unprepared for this. Radio and television descriptions of the traffic jams were, like, just stop going. <laughs> like, on, like, Thursday night, they were, like, if you were going to go to Woodstock, don't go. Um, they were, like, people were saying that the New York State Thruway was closed, even though it, it wasn't. Like, they were just trying to get people to turn around. And they, so obviously to add to the problems of like just the physically, the amount of people that were coming, like 400,000 people in this tiny town in upstate New York, um, there were tons of rain before, during the concert, but also before. So it caused muddy roads and fields and it was just gross. The facilities were not equipped to provide sanitation, um, no first aid for any one of the people that were there. And there were obviously tons of people on drugs tripping out being like, I'm dying. And it, and it was just other people being like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, that, like, that was first aid at Woodstock. Um, so hundreds of thousands of people are struggling against bad, wa bad weather. There's not enough food. And the sanitation is basically disgusting. It's basically like, oh, like, if you can find a place to pitch your tent, like, go for it. But, like, people are just, like, shitting in the streets. It's not like there's, like, you know, porta-potties. So on, on Sunday morning, like, Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of new york at the time he was like i'm thinking about calling in 10,000 national guard troops to like shut this down um and then one of the organizers robert john roberts was like you know don't do it but we we will like the county declared a state of emergency and um some of the performers were airlifted in and out of the concert site because it was just so nuts like the roads were so insane um and it was wild. Um, so just to get into the performers a little bit, it opened with um, Richie Havens, who sang the song Freedom, Claim to Fame, um, and everybody, and that version is available like online. You can listen to it. It's really good. And that was when everybody was like, this is just good vibes. This is all like Friday night. This starts like Friday afternoon. So on Friday, Arlo Guthrie plays, Melanie plays, um, Sweetwater, and Joan Baez, who was six months pregnant at the time, shut down Friday night of Woodstock at six months pregnant, like played till 2 a.m., played two encores, like queen shit. 
I could not be no. more obsessed with Joan Baez. Like, it's I know. for another she day. But, like, is I, not kidding. I stand Joan Baez harder than most other people. It's for another day. And also, have you seen that documentary about Do- Bob Dylan where Joan Baez is like, yes. I'm still in love with Bob Dylan. Like, Bob Dylan hit me up. And I'm like, like I get it. Do you <laughs> forget I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Bob Dylan? I've seen every oh, Bob Dylan yeah. documentary of the world. For- oh, God, I forgot. We we need to do more on Bob, Rebecca. That should I be mean, our next We'll, get well to I'll it. need a full episode for Bob. Well, yeah, you will. You will. Okay, you're right. So then Saturday, pretty good lineup. We got Country Joe McDonald, Santana, the incredible string band, who was supposed to play the day before, but they were like, I don't want to play in the rain. Saturday was the least rainy day. But again, I just want you to picture 400,000 people sliding around in the mud. Like, it was gross. So muddy. The like, pictures are was, gnarly. The pictures are gnarly, and there's no food either. Like, no. people were just, like, it's getting It's like the fire like, festival of festivals, yeah, but, like, was, people were was, living. It was like a fire festival, but, like, people were down for it. <laughs> like, it was like if the fire festival and we just got there, we're like, okay, as long as these people are still playing music, I'm down. It's a testament um, to the power of drugs. Yes. You just don't I care mean, if you're on a bunch of LSD. Shout out, shout out to drugs. Shout out to drugs. I mean, if you're on acid, you're not that worried about eating. Um, so also we have Can't Heat, The Grateful Dead, of course, play for like two hours on Saturday night. Um, and they ended their set with a 50-minute version of Turn On Your Love Light. Ugh, amazing. Um, then Janis Joplin, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Janis Joplin played from 2 to 3 a.m. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, I should go to sleep. Janis Joplin just played. No. Then Sly and the Family Stone plays from 3.30 oh. to 4.30 a.m. Then you're Nothing like, like oh, that man. 3.30 Sly and the Family Stone set to get you. <laughs> no, okay. The but, then, but then say you're like, oh, I got to go to bed. You're just getting your things. You're just putting your weird, dirty, muddy blanket on. And then the who comes out at 5 a.m. <laughs> Insane. And you're not sleeping through the Who. That's physically you're, impossible. You're not sleeping through the Who. So at 6.05 a.m., the Who stops playing, and you're like, I gotta take a nap. You take a power siesta, and at the stroke of 8 a.m., Jefferson Airplane starts wow. playing. Wow. The trippiest isn't of them all. Ins- isn't that crazy? Like, I honestly didn't night? realize they had sets throughout the nights. That's wild. No, throughout the night, like, crazy. And, like, the Who playing, like, who is, like, who is who the manager of the... Who? who are you? But who? like, who is the bit? Ba- who, who is managing the who that they're like agreed to playing at five a.m.? I care to you the who the- suggested it. They're like, you know, yeah. What? <laughs> they must have been like, I want to do drugs all night. Like, it's fine. I'll do it at five. Um, okay. So anyway, oh, and then a fun fact about the who is that they were briefly interrupted by Abby Hoffman, who, oh. who, yeah. So if you have seen or know about the 1968 Democratic Convention, which is on my to-do list for Manifest Destiny. I think it would be really interesting. We've um, talked about the trial of the Chicago yes, 7. How of course, great that movie. You only watched it because of me. Uh, well, that's not true, but you it can is take true. credit. That's Whatever. I've anyway, become a huge Abby Hoffman fan after watching yes, that movie. So anyway, he was a comedian and he was interrupted. Like, he interrupted The Who at 5.30 in the morning <laughs> just to pop in. Um, so anyway, so then Jefferson Airplane comes on. That ends the set. Then Sunday... Um, got kind of crazy. Joe Cocker is playing um, at 2 p.m. Then at 10 p.m. the band comes on. I'm, I'm like skipping a bunch of acts that don't really matter. Then we have Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Then 3 a.m. Who comes on but Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, baby. I mean. An acoustic and electric play- set was played. And then Neil Young skipped most of the acoustic set. It's worth noting. <laughs> of course. Oh, oh, and another thing about Joe Cocker is that that was the first time they played with a little help from my friends, and it was during a thunderstorm and, like, disrupted it. Wow. Like, can you imagine with a little help from my friends playing, and there's just, like, God and is The Joe Cocker version you? is so good. Like, I think so it's one of good. the, like, 
best covers of any Beatles song ever. Mm-hmm. It's just so raw and gritty. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what that must have been like. Ugh, I think that's why he ended up recording it for real because everybody loved it at Woodstock so much. Yeah. Like, I think he just, I think he just played it on a. On like a if you're gonna win. do the Beatles, you have to do it in your own way. And like, who better than Joe Cocker just to like turn? To that me, whole he vibe. is. I like forget that the Beatles play that because I was a big Wonder Years fan as a child. Oh, so sure. to me the Joe Cocker version is the real version. Yeah, yeah. Um but anyway, so then at so then there's four hundred thousand people at its peak. This is like by Monday morning there were only about thirty thousand people left and um Jimi Hendrix comes on and closes the whole shebang. Like Jimi like, Hendrix is your closer. Like can you do better? Jimi no. Hendrix is your closer and that is when he debuts his electric version of the Star Spangled Banner. Ugh. Which is, ugh, like, I should just be got the chills. real version of it. Like, once he did that, it's like, that has got to be how we present the I Star Circle Banner. I know, I know. And there's out. a lot of people that, um, there's a lot of people that could have been there but didn't come. Like, for example, Bob Dylan lived yeah. in the town of Woodstock, New York. Yeah, he sure did not show up. <laughs> and he did not show up. He was, like, at a different music festival in, like, Ireland. Like, who even knows? Like, lots of people, like, Led Zeppelin was supposed to be there. There were a lot of people who declined or, like, missed connections, like Joni Mitchell. You know what? I don't even want to read about the people that were there because... Because they missed out. Because they missed out. And, um, yeah, and the Rolling Stones declined because of Mick Jagger was in Australia filming a movie. <laughs> of course, with his <laughs> And big, Keith big Richards' mouth. girlfriend had just had a baby. So, you know, it's sad to think what could have... I mean, it, but it was obviously awful. It was obviously awesome um wow so basically it just starts to disperse a lot of people only saw the beginning of Jimi Hendrix sex and they were like set and was like okay let's get out of here um so it peaked at an estimated 450,000 people um and it was remarkably peaceful so what everybody always says about Woodstock is like wow it was so peaceful for all those people but like then I was like looking into it (laughs) And everyone's like, it's remarkably peaceful giving the number of people and the conditions, which was, which were disgusting, but two people died. So one of them was from, one of them was from insulin usage, which I don't know what that is. Do people do insulin like recreationally? I I kind of read it as like, maybe he had diabetes. It's a very expensive drug to do recreationally. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, unless you have insurance, I don't think you're going to want to get, you don't want to Also, this country is fucked. Insulin shouldn't be expensive, but that's for another day. Yeah. So my assumption from reading this is that it was somebody with diabetes that like didn't get their insulin or took too much or whatever. And then the other person died because a tractor ran someone over that was sleeping in a hay field. Oh boy. That's like, bad. think about that poor family. It's like, oh, did you have fun this weekend at Woodstock? It's like, no. Bobby got run over by a tractor. I mean, if you're going to die young and tragically, like, it is pretty iconic to be run over by a tractor at Woodstock. Like, <laughs> Well, there are also two births recorded at this event. Which what? Was One was in a car that was caught in traffic trying to get in. So it wasn't even at Woodstock. They were just like, I don't, like, they were not even trying to get to the hospital. They were trying to get to Woodstock. <laughs> And That's another dark. one was airlifted um, by a helicopter because the woman was actively in labor. And then also, sadly, there were four miscarriages at Woodstock. I don't know who's keeping track of those facts. Like, that seems wild. Um, but, you know, a lot of drugs. Don't do drugs if you're pregnant, honestly. Wow. <laughs> if you take nothing else away from this It's an important podcast, PSA from it's an important your, your PSA. hosts. And you're, and you're, you know, and I'm a renowned obstetrician. So, just kidding, I'm not. But wow. did you believe me? Maybe. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so Max Yasker, the guy whose dairy farm it was, 
looking back on it, says, like, if we join them, if we can make this festival, we can turn those adversities that are the problems of America today into a hope for a brighter and more peaceful future. Wow. Which is, you know, fine. (laughs) Um, But you honestly, you get the vibe that they were extremely, um, it's kind of this interesting tension between the organizers of the concerts um, and how many people actually showed up and like what kind of took over like it became a free it became a free concert because the organizers literally couldn't install enough fences or get enough people to collect fees and ticket booths on opening day like originally it was going to cost $18 in advance and 24 at the gate which is about $130 and $170 today and basically you could like you had to mail in for them or like go somewhere in Manhattan to get them but people could just show up. And what and what ultimately ended up is that so many people showed up, they just couldn't charge you. Um, but so so another really interesting thing is that the media coverage... Oh, my God. Another freaking... Sorry. Another... Spam call. Telemarketer. Another spam call. I'm getting... Please reach out, manifestors. If you're getting as many spam calls as me, or if you were and you fixed it somehow, let me know. Yes, actually, so, we both need that information. We're both really struggling yes. with, like, relentless Connecticut really spammers. So please, I'm getting, like, us. six... Six to eight spam calls a day, and it's out of control. So anyway, um, so what's really interesting is that the media's coverage of this, because no one else is there, really. It's not like the New York Times sent someone. Like, it was like, oh, like, just little local people. Um, They kind of emphasized the problems of the event, didn't really realize that everybody had so much fun. Like, the headline of the Daily News is, like, traffic uptight at Hippie Fest, um, and hippies fired hippies mired in a sea of mud i would pay to have that like article framed hippies (laughs) mired in a sea of mud like iconic and the new york times ran an editorial that was called nightmare in the catskills and it says the dreams of marijuana and rock music that drew fans and hippies to the catskills had little more sanity than the impulses that drive the lemmings to march their deaths in the sea oh my god (laughs) they ended in a nightmare of mud and stagnation what kind of culture is it that can produce so colossal a mess um, and so by the end of the festival, like it partially because people were reading this in the New York Times and the parents of the people that were at the concerts were like, my kids called me on the phone and they said that they're having so much fun. <laughs> like, so it was literally like the New York Times got it wrong and they found out that they were wrong and like it became more positive because like these people that were reading the New York Times were like, I'm pretty sure my daughter's there. And like she said, she's having the time of her life. Um So that's really interesting, too. And of course, you know, Woodstock lives on forever as this really important countercultural moment and like an opportunity where people like of like minded people really came together. It was the kind of epicenter of the of the 60s movement of the anti-war movement um the pictures are all so interesting you can really see that people are facing the elements like they are exposed to the elements people are so underprepared they have no food no shelter and it's literally just three days of being knee deep but just everyone is on so many drugs that they're just having fun um yeah exactly cannot stress the drugs enough cannot stress the mud enough those are the two big takeaways i want you to have about drugs and mud just it it is drugs and mud baby look forward to um, our merch look forward to our merch drugs and mud (laughs) yes so um i highly recommend i'll post them on the instagram but like there are just so many iconic photos of woodstock of just like so many young people that just do not care um and you just really get the sense that these are people that have broken the social contract like literally these are people who are like living in a way that is like 
never going to be like you know what I mean it's like your mom is never going to be down with the fact that you're like sitting in a muddy field covered in trash like it was kind of the young people's moment to be like I'm doing my own thing Um, I mean I think it really 69 like marks the the big transition between how people behaved in the 60s and like what happens in the 70s like this exactly it's kind of like the two yes it's kind of the apex and it, and it is impressive that it was so peaceful, especially considering that the National Guard was almost deployed. But it is like this like special moment where it's like it was the end, but like these people didn't know it. Like it was yeah. the end of the 60s and it was like the end of this moment in time and like there would never be another festival like it, but they didn't know it at the time and like we'll always remember it as that. Like, you know what I mean? Like they were... They totally. were going to have, like, a, an, another concert the next year. And Max Yasker was like, I actually went back to farming on this dairy farm. And he was like, and I am behind. So, no, you can't, ha- you can't have Woodstock on my farm again. It was um, like natural tilling. He got all these hippies. Just to till yeah, he got all these. He was like, business is not good, you guys. Um, <laughs> but he got a lot of flack. I mean, a lot of people in the town were not happy about it. And they were actually really mad. And it's actually funny. There's, like, all this, like, stuff about how... Woodstock, New York, which is 40 miles away, kind of, like, tries to claim it, like, mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, they're like, oh, hey, like, you, you talking about Woodstock? That's us. But um, it actually took place in Bethel. But in the last, like, you know, 20, 25 years, Bethel has started to, like, warm up to it. They have, like, a little plaque at the farm and all of that stuff. But, like, again, it's, like, it's a very, like, hippies versus the establishment thing because the, these this, like, small farming community in upstate New York was, like, genuinely pissed that 450,000 people came and, like, clogged their roads and, like, ruined all of their land, which is fair. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah. Very fair. Um, but, yeah, but there's lots of, you know, anniversary stuff. Um, so uh, 2019 was the 50th anniversary, and there was, like, a whole bunch of, like, new releases and stuff like that and, like, recordings of it. Well, there was supposed um, to be a concert, a Woodstock two, essentially. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna talk. I was gonna talk about that, but like, it actually ended up getting canceled. It was like a yes. really weird. Sketchy it was very, thing. very sketchy. They had this Japanese investor, and <laughs> none of the infrastructure was in place. Like Michael Lang completely dropped the ball. He was he'd rented properties yes. out in the area, and uh-huh. and his backers pulled out right before things were. I think actually tickets had already got on sale. He had like. Kanye West line or was maybe Jay-Z like a bunch of no he was like but he was gonna get a lot of people like he was gonna get like Crosby from Crosby Still Dashing like Melanie Country Joe McDonald great like three members of the Grateful Dead like he was trying to like reassemble everybody that is still alive from Woodstock and then also like throw in some Kanye and then but it was ultimately like was a fire fest in the making and finally like they closed they canceled it it was some drama they cancel it. it. Yeah, there was a lot of drama. Were you going to go or something? How do you know so much about this? I was working at a startup at the time in the music industry, and we were getting all sorts of inside chatter about the fact that Michael Lang was wild and out, because Michael Lang was the one that was putting this on. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, w- it was just like one of those things that before it kind of broke the news, there was murmurs that this was all going to go belly up, and it sure did in spectacular fashion. And it really did, and they only canceled the concert 16 days before it was supposed to Yeah, it was bad. It was really, really embarrassing for him, and his career really hasn't... I mean, now we're in COVID, so live performance is all suspended Yeah, I don't think any live music bookers are having the best year ever. No. But probably... I got out just in time. I got out right before this all happened. (laughs) Good call. So the music venue that I worked for for three years was, like, the target demographic was 60-plus hippies, because that's what the owner was. So he, like, exclusively targeted Woodstock performers. Like, that's all he wanted to book. So we ended up booking Canned Heat, 
which also performed at yes. Woodstock. Yes, there was only they, one. They, they played. One original member was left in the band, Adolfo De La Parra, and he looked rough. Um, but they actually <laughs> sounded really good. And they Canned Heat was one of those bands that had a lot of people coming in and out of the band. Like Walter Trout played in the band for a while. And the other one who I really had like an experience with was Melanie. And Melanie was the youngest performer at Woodstock. She was only one of three mm-hmm. female soloists. And she soloists. played on the first night. She did. And it was so rainy when she was playing that she wrote ended up writing a song after the fact called Candles. It's not called Candles in the Wind. That's the Elton John song. But it's something equivalent. And it was about Hippies how, in the mud. Something like that. She was looking out over her set and all of these people were, you know, doing the whole lighter swaying thing. That was like the first instance of that really becoming a thing. So Melanie played the venue I worked at and she was a riot from the beginning. Like really, really funny. She gave it her all. We may or may not have imbibed in some somewhat legal light recreational substances you absolute don't come for me um and it was great and she was like very much it was it was very cute she was an older woman at this point so she's like okay like i just performed with this young musician that i'm really i think she's gonna be a star her name's miley cyrus and i was like lady (laughs) we're talking this is like in 2016 i was like i mean where have you been like you don't know who hannah montana is like put some respect in her name and she was great so i i've rubbed shoulders with a couple of woodstock legends nbd well shout out to melanie and a and a equal shout out to Miley Cyrus. She gets yeah. that like she has an incredible voice. <laughs> Miley Cyrus has the best voice in the game. Her recent cover of Heart of Glass is Oh my un- god, I know. Unbelievable. She has another cover. What is it? I'm I'm not gonna Jolene, right now. her Jolene cover. No, not Jolene, that's really old. She has some other cover that I just listened to the other day and I was like, I am like stopped in my tracks. Like you're the more she sings genius. classic rock, the more I'm like, This is your lane. Stay in mm-hmm. it. Like forget Stay pop. Like you've got that raspy screechy tone that is very like well, non well, Dolly Parton is her cool. godmother. Yes. Dolly Parton shares a birthday with me. I share Well Dolly Parton Dolly. gave me my vaccine. So I feel very connected <laughs> you to her win. currently. You win. I, I saw Dolly I Parton uh two summers ago at the Okay, then you win. <laughs> I win. It was great. She was amazing. Okay. She is everything you want and more. And her vocals are still on fire. That's how you know like the difference between modern performers and the old timers. These people can be like one foot in the grave looking so rough, can't get a sentence out because they're so just like their voices seem frayed, they're a little too baked, they've smoked too much, done too much LSD over their lifetimes, and they get on stage and it's like they are transported back in time 40 years, hitting all the notes, the same stage presence. I went back and watched Melanie's original performance after having her at the venue and I was like, it's the same, it's the same thing. She looks older, but she can still do it. I'm just so impressed by the vocal talent. And I also want to, like, briefly say that that time in American music changed the game across the board. And the fact that we had that Mm -hmm. intersection of all these geniuses, you've got Janis Joplin rubbing shoulders with Jimi Hendrix. We haven't had an intersection of raw talent like that ever. I've I've compared it in the past to the Bloomsbury group and this that moment in literature when you had like James mm-hmm. Joyce chilling out with T.S. Eliot. Wow, that's a really good, that's a really good parallel to draw. It's the same thing. You had like incredible talent, the, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan giving the Beatles their first hit of weed. Like you had this enormous intersection of talent and collaboration and a lot of these people were working together on music and advancing their careers together. And I just wish that we could see a moment like that again, where you're seeing musicians really. Okay. Not to play devil's advocate, but I think that we, we have seen that with like Tupac and Biggie and like, 
you know. I like, will totally give it to you Kanye for hip-hop. Kanye and Absolutely. Nas. Like, I feel like hip-hop and rap, like. Hip-hop is the and, inheritor of collaboration, and it's it's Well, totally, great. but I, I agree with you, but I think that, like, what's so cool about Woodstock is it's kind of, like, a culmination of, like, rock and roll, which has become this completely American art form, like, that had emerged out of literally nothing in, like, a decade. So, and, like, Woodstock is kind of, like, the beacon of that. Like, it really shows how much it happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so I, t- I totally agree with you. With, and and thank you for bringing it up because it is perf- it is important to look at from that perspective. It's, like, the, the apex of this, like, this American sound. It's, like, showing how far we come. Like, literally, it's 1969, like, and Jimi Hendrix is playing the Star-Spangled Banner on an electric guitar. Like, can you even imagine, like, 10 years earlier yeah. in 1959 that happening? Like, no. It's, like... And also another fun fact about the word rock and roll, it's from um, African-American slang for sex. Uh, what? <laughs> Isn't that I didn't amazing? Know that. Sorry, I should have opened with that. But yeah, that's what rock and roll is. And like now, like, you know, I try to only think about sex as rock and roll. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's or, or the iconic. Beast. I had no idea. Yeah, I know. Tell your friend. Tell a friend. Wow. Um, well. That's a, that's a great place to end. <laughs> I really didn't think that like you were going to teach me more about Woodstock today than I already knew, given the... You know, you came to your consciousness of it in my dorm room, but here we are. I've learned a lot. Props to you. Chirp, chirp. Um, yes, well, thank you so much for joining us. And we are open to requests as always. And shout out to our new listeners. And next week is going to be an especially exciting oh, episode. Yes. Next week is our first guest. guest. And it's an international guest. We're not going to spoil it any more than that. But like, we're making it. We're happening. We're making moves. It's all happening. We're making it. And cannot stress this enough if you want to come on. <laughs> you too can be a guest. You don't Tax have to be international. Though, we have this international base. So if you're, you know, one of our international uh, yeah. listeners, send us a DM. We're ready. Yes, please do. And we're very excited for this guest because she's a former nemesis of ours. Yes. Yes. And she was in our fateful AP West she class. She was in like, our AP West class. So we'll have an opportunity to talk about that, which will be fun for everyone. Just kidding. Yes. It will be miserable for everyone that wasn't in the class. Yes, yes, yes. She's going to really provide some context for you about how insufferable Blair and I actually were in this class. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode next week. Stay tuned. Okay, have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a positive review on your preferred podcast platform, but only if you enjoyed it. Looking for a history fix in between episodes of Manifest Destiny? Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Manifest Destiny Pod for exclusive content and quality memes.